I'd like to welcome you to Severn and to week five of our series called The Kingdom, in which we are looking at uh, some parables that Jesus gave during his time here. Um, this may sound obvious, but it's, it's worth noting here, you'll, you'll see why in just a second, that Jesus gave more parables during his ministry here than we can cover in this six-week series. What that then means is that um, we had to pick and choose a little bit about which parables were going to make it into this series. And uh, this week was a toss-up between two parables. And I kind of had to call an audible. Uh, One of the parables was really, um, I would say, illuminating, uh, maybe even uplifting. And the other parable was... um, really challenging. Uh, It sort of felt like a kick in the teeth, to be perfectly honest with you. And uh, you already know which one I picked. (laughs) But but while I was debating which one to go with, um, a statement from a pastor I really admire uh, popped into my head. Uh, Years ago, I was listening. I used to listen to Francis Chan all the time. Uh, He he pastored a huge church, like 5,000 people out in California, Simi Valley. Uh, Had a huge impact on my life when I was in my early, mid-20s. And uh, I remember one time he was opening up his service and uh, he, he began with a story. He did that often. It always really captured my attention. And uh, he said that somebody came up to him after one of his services and said, uh, Pastor Francis, you know, we really love this church and we really love your teachings, uh, but, which every pastor loves those conversations, she said, but, um, you know, sometimes I visit other churches with my friends and, and my family, and we always leave those churches, we always leave those churches feeling uplifted, and we don't always get that here. So why is that? And, uh, and Francis's answer to that question will tell you everything you need to know about him as a pastor, and it's, it's why I admire him. In answer to that question, he picked his Bible up in his hand, like I am now, and he looked at his congregation, and he says... That's because we teach this whole book here. That statement that I heard uh, over 10 years ago now uh, really stuck with me, and it solidified for me this conviction that part of what it means to be a faithful communicator of God's word means that sometimes your your messages should be uplifting, uh, but sometimes they should be challenging. And the reason for that is because scripture's like that. And I don't... You know, I don't know kind of where you're coming from, but, but I'll just speak personally. When I spend time with God in his word, I frequently come across passages that absolutely elevate me to the, crowd, uh, to the clouds, but it's never too long before I then find a passage of scripture that humbles me right into the dirt. And my conviction is that we need, at least I know I need, but I think we all need both of those things if we're going to be spiritually healthy people. And so today we're going to look at a parable that um, it, I'm confident is going to be really challenging to you um, because it was really challenging to me. And so if it hurts to hear it, just imagine what it's like to, to deliver it and to sit on it for seven days. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17. Uh, on the front end, all I want to look at is verses 7 through 10. Here's what Jesus said almost 2,000 years ago. Which one of you having a slave, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink, later you can eat and drink. Verse 9, does he thank that slave because he did what was commanded? 
Verse 10, in the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are good for nothing slaves. We've only done our duty. I didn't write it. This is God's word. Um, I hope this doesn't sound needlessly offensive, but the more that I looked at that parable, the more I thought that is about the most un-American passage in scripture. Because as, as Americans, as an American, you know, our culture is all about our rights and our freedoms. And literally, the, the document that, that served as the foundation, not only for this nation, but for the way of life that we all enjoy, at least those listening that live here, is called the Declaration of Independence. And everything that Jesus said just completely cut across the grain of that. What Jesus is doing in this parable is he's answering, he's, he's, he's talking about what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus' answer to that question, according to this parable, uh, first off, being a Christian means a lot of things. You know, being a Christian means being a child of God. It means being an heir of a kingdom. It means being, you know, a citizen of a holy nation and a member of a royal priesthood and more than a conqueror and all that kind of stuff. Scripture hits all of that. But in this parable, what Jesus is explaining is that what it means to be a Christian is to be a, a servant, that a Christian is somebody who serves the Lord not as an employee, but as a slave who no longer belongs to him or herself. And, and I think there's a tendency to hear that and think, okay, I, I, maybe if you're a pastor, you know, maybe if you have the gift of an evangelist, maybe if, you know, maybe if you have that temperament or maybe you work in a church full time, I could see how some people could do that, but that certainly can't be for everybody. But Jesus doesn't give us that out here. He simply says, if you've given your life to me, you belong to me, and this is what your life should look like. You're a servant. And so what I want to do today is look at really what Jesus means when he, when he calls us to be servants, specifically by looking at, at, at three things. First, I want to look at what a servant understands. Secondly, what a servant does. And then thirdly, what you and I need to, to understand if we're going to become the kinds of servants that Jesus calls us to be. So with that, we're going to get to our, our first of my mega popular ideas today. Idea number one is this. A servant understands that God owes them nothing. The, uh, the Greek word that Jesus uses here, depending on your version of the Bible, it might get translated servant or it might, might get translated slave. Um, one of the most important things to understand about it is that Jesus is not talking about an employee. See, Jesus' parable is about a farmer who owns this kind of small plot of land and he has one farmhand and that farmhand is a servant and the servant goes to work all day out in those fields. And when that servant comes in, uh, the master doesn't say, all right, you know, time to punch out, it's five o'clock, let's go grab a drink. Uh, the, the farmer says, the master says, hey, you're not done. Now it's time to go and, and get me my meal. And then after the servant does all this, uh, you notice the servant doesn't expect anything from the master, doesn't expect a thank you, doesn't expect a salary, doesn't expect a gold watch when they retire after 35 years or anything like that. The, the, the servant's mindset toward the master is just, hey, I'm a, I'm a good-for-nothing servant. You know, I've only done what was required of me. In other words, the servant has this mindset to the master that says, you don't owe me anything. Now, one thing I think is important to address with a text like this um, 
that as Americans, I think it's harder for us to read passages of Scripture like this because when we come across the word slave or, or servant or the concept of slavery in Scripture, we have a tendency to read that through the lens of the slavery that's a part of our nation's history. And it's, it is really important to understand that the slavery in our nation's history is a far cry from the slavery that you read about, for instance, uh, you know, in, in, in um, the culture described in Scripture 2,000 years ago. Because the slavery in our, in our nation's history, first off, was race-based, but secondly, it was a holistic slavery. What that means is that a master owned not just the labor, but the person of the slave, the whole person. So they could do whatever they wanted to the slave. They could mistreat the slave accordingly. And that's not what we're talking about in a parable uh, like this. It's actually a, a lot different. The, um, in Scripture, slavery had to do with what's called indentured servanthood. A servant was basically somebody who had fallen into debt. And, of course, that was in a day and age when you couldn't simply declare bankruptcy. Um, and so what happened is if you fell into a debt that was greater than you were able to pay, what happened was you were obliged... Uh, to go into service for your creditor until you actually paid your debt off. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, that certainly wasn't a, a good thing. It certainly wasn't an ideal way of living, but it was better than the slavery in our nation's history, number one, because it was not race-based. Number two, because your, your master did not own your, your person. He, he or she simply uh, owned your labor. Uh, and as, as tough as a life as that would have been for a slave in Jesus' day, the hearers of this parable Jesus gave would have known that that way of life described for the, uh, uh, the servant in this parable was actually better than the alternative. And the reason I say that is because in Jesus' day, um, your, your uh, creditor, the person to whom you, you owed a debt that you couldn't play, uh, uh, pay, didn't have to bring you on as a farmhand, didn't have to bring you on as a servant. They could have just thrown you into debtor's prison where you would have died. And so the point is, Jesus is, is talking about a scenario here in which a servant uh, understands that the master owes them nothing. Meanwhile, they owe their master absolutely everything. And Jesus' is, Jesus's point here is that that exact situation, that situation where uh, a servant owes the master everything. Meanwhile, the master owes the servant nothing. That is the exact situation between me and God. That's how I should think about the situation between me and God. And actually, it's entirely appropriate to say that you can't really, you're not really a Christian until you understand this idea that God owes you nothing. And as grating an idea as that is to, to the modern person, to all of us, because of the culture that we live in, we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes, I actually think this is a really helpful idea to keep in mind. I, I think it's a really practical idea. And the reason I say that, I'm not looking for a, sh uh, a show of hands here. In fact, I, I would say, please don't raise your hand. But if you could just get real honest with yourself for a moment, I, I'd just like to ask, how many of us have gotten angry at God because our lives haven't gone the way we wanted them to? Uh, you, you know, maybe this is a mindset that you've seen in yourself. Maybe this is a mindset that you've heard from somebody who's close to you. But how many of us know what it is to be, you know, dealing with bitterness or anger or anxiety or, or just a kind of general cloud of depression that hovers over everything because we feel that God hasn't held up his end of the bargain in our life? You know, I've been, I've been pastoring for over eight years now, and what I've found in my experience is that a lot more people feel that way than are willing to admit that they feel that way. 
And as a result of that, we experience all of these kind of uncontrollable emotions that drive us from one breakdown to the next. But the, the, you know, the truth is, there's actually an assumption underneath all of that. And that assumption is that God owes me a good life. That not, not just that he owes me a good life, but that he owes me my definition of a good life. Which is a totally unprovable premise. I don't even have enough wisdom to know what a good life for Ryan Cox is, let alone demand one from an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient being. And if, if we take out the assumption underneath that, the, the truth is we would lose all of our bitterness about what's happened to us and our anger about what might be happening to us and our anxiety about what might happen to us tomorrow. We would lose all of those uncontrollable emotions. They would lose their power in our lives if we took out the assumption, the assumption underneath them that gives rise to them. In other words, if, 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 we would, if we would grasp what Jesus is teaching here, if I would grasp what Jesus is teaching here, I think if you can be honest, you can admit that if you could grasp what Jesus is teaching here and we could take out this sense of entitlement that the human heart is so prone to and insert in its place the heart of a servant like the one Jesus describes here, the plain fact of the matter is we'd experience a whole lot more peace. And so first off, a servant understands that God owes them nothing. <clears throat> Didn't expect any rounds of applause, but we'll move forward. Number two, this is what a servant does, according to this parable Jesus delivers here. Number two, a servant obeys without qualification. And I think this one might be even harder for people in this culture, speaking from personal experience. Uh, Verse 10, Luke 17, verse 10 says, In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, We are good for nothing slaves. We've only done our duty. What's interesting is that right after this, Jesus tells a story about ten lepers. And um, it's easy to think that the text is just kind of jumping all over the place, but I don't think it is. I think that the story of the ten lepers is meant to illustrate the point that Jesus is, is making in verse 10. So let me just read this story real quickly to you. It's just verses 11 to 16. Right after this, it says, While traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with with serious skin diseases met him, which is what leprosy was, a serious skin disease. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And this is interesting. And while they were going, they were healed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him, and he was a Samaritan. Now what this story does, among other things, is it illustrates the principle that Jesus was talking about in verse 10. Uh, In this story, um, these lepers ask Jesus to heal them. But interestingly enough, like Jesus you know, kind of always surprised people and does things in a different way than you'd expect him to, instead of giving them a healing... Jesus gives them an order. Now, you've probably heard something about leprosy before, um, and if so, then you know that lepers were not just people who were in physical pain. Um, Lepers, because they had an untreatable disease in the society that they lived in, uh, they they also, um, they were social outcasts. And so having leprosy meant not only that you had a medical condition, it meant you had a social position. And so you could not come near anybody. There was a certain distance that you needed to stay away from, from entire towns and from other people. 
And uh, that's why it says here on the front end that they stood at a distance from Jesus and, and yelled at him. I, I don't mean this to be funny, but I just want you to consider it because we're living in a time with a great example of this. If you find wearing a mask and social distancing has been difficult for the last calendar year, just consider what it would be like to have leprosy. Just consider what it would be like to have that as a death sentence. And dial whatever you felt like for the last year up, up to about 1,000, and I think you're starting to understand what every single day of life was like for someone who'd been diagnosed with leprosy. So, so that's what you're dealing with in, the, in this story. And Jesus, as they come to him and they ask him, you know, cleanse me from this. I've heard that you've worked miracles. Give me a miracle. What Jesus does is he, he commands them to go to the priest because priests were the community health officers. They were the ones who declared you a leper and therefore unclean. They were also the ones who could declare you clean and remove the social sanction from your life. These people could give you your life back. Um, and so instead of giving them a, a healing, Jesus gives them an order. Go to these people, present yourself to these people. Um, I just want you to consider for, for a moment what it would have been like to be in one of these lepers' position and ask yourself what you would have done if you were one of them. And, and just to be clear, let me open up about what I think I would have done. I've just called out to Jesus who I've heard has done all these powerful miracles. He's this rabbi unlike any other rabbi we've ever seen or heard of. Maybe he's the Messiah, whatever that means, who knows. I ask him for a miracle and he tells me, go to the health officer. Here's what I would do. I would look down and see that I still have leprosy. And the first place my mind would go is, okay, I don't know what kind of sick joke you're trying to play on me, but I'm not making a fool of myself. That's where my mind would go. See, for, for, for a leper to go running into a village and then to a health officer uh, is, is basically, I mean, that, that at the very least, that could get you mocked and ridiculed. That's basically inviting an emotionally devastating experience in your life where you're just reminded one more really painful time of exactly how alone you are in the world. Now, that's the, that's the best case scenario for a leper who goes running into a village and, and up to a priest. But maybe it'd be worse than that. Maybe they'd punish you you know, for coming too close. Maybe they'd, they'd, they'd you know, hit you with some, some, some stricter social sanctions, or maybe they'd even kill you. Maybe they'd look at you and say, hey, this guy knows he has nothing to live for, and so he's trying to infect the rest of us, trying to bring everybody down with him, so we have no choice but to kill him. The point is, Jesus, in giving them this command, put all of these lepers in a very, I would say, a very difficult situation, but they obeyed. And the story tells us that they were healed as they obeyed, not beforehand. And one of the things that that story is meant to get across to us is that if you only obey when you understand why, then you're not going to experience the power of Jesus in your life. And the reason for that is because if you only, this is a hard word for me to preach to myself, but the reason for that is because if you only obey when you understand why, you're not obeying. If you and I only obey when we understand why God's calling us to do something, if, if we decide that we're only going to obey when his logic lines up with our logic, when it makes sense to me, or when you see how it's going to pay out for you, that it's going to pay off for you, uh, basically if there are any conditions to your obedience, that's not obedience at all. You might be agreeing with God, but what you're not doing is obeying God. Uh, there's a lot of images to sort of illustrate this, but I, I like to think of it in terms of a house. If you let Jesus into a house... And you say, Jesus, this is your house, but you've got to stay out of these rooms here. That's not Jesus' house. 
if, if it's Jesus' house, but, but you're in a condition to tell him which rooms he can and cannot enter into, then, you know, you just got to call that what it is. It's your house, and Jesus is your guest. And along those same lines, uh, if, you're, if your mindset in life is, 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 Lord, you know, I'll obey you here because this makes sense to me, but I'm, I'm not going to obey you here because that can't be right. I mean, that, I, I wouldn't be happy if I actually did what you've called me to do here. In other words, you know, if, if your mindset is one of, you know, Jesus, I, I agree with you that gossiping is bad, and so I'm going to try really hard not to gossip anymore, but I've heard what you've had to say about human sexuality, and my moral compass just does not swing that way. Or, you know, I've, I've, I've heard about some of the things that you have to say about my finances, but the truth is, if I practice that kind of generosity, then I couldn't afford the life that I want for myself. Or here, here's a hot one. Jesus, I know that some of what you say might actually cause me to have to rethink some of my political views, or at least rethink the way that I treat people who don't see my political views the same way that I see them. And so that's not, you know, you, 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 you can go, you, you can speak to me in these areas of my life where we happen to agree, but not these areas. Really what you're doing is you're telling Jesus which rooms he can and cannot enter into into your own life. And what that means is there's really not been a genuine relinquishment of your, of your will because everything is still on your own terms. And really the final authority in your life is your own understanding and your own ability to kind of perceive the logic of something. And basically, you know, you're, you're taking God's commands as, as suggestions and, and really fundamentally what you've done is you've treated Jesus as your consultant rather than your master. And I, I heard a, uh, a pastor I really admire named Tim Keller speak to this idea of treating Jesus as your consultant or your assistant one time. He, he said that um, when, when he was a lot younger, he was in Colorado and he found himself in a camp and he, he heard an illustration from a woman who actually, he said that this, this illustration actually changed his life. And, uh, and so I want to offer it to you. And, and if you're a visual thinker, I think you're really going to appreciate this. For sake of argument, let's say that the distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles. We'll just round it out. 93 million miles. <clears throat> this lady said, if you reduce the distance between the earth and the sun, that 93 million mile expanse to just the width of this sheet of paper right there. If that equals 93 million miles, then the distance between Earth and the next closest star would be represented by a stack of papers about 70 feet high. That's the nearest star. And the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy as a whole would be represented by a stack of papers over 310 miles high. That's how big this galaxy is. And then, of course, what we now know today is that our galaxy is one of a seemingly infinite number of galaxies in what we call the universe. There's actually more galaxies in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. Our top scientists simply say that the universe is expanding, but the only reason they say that is because we just can't seem to see the end of it no matter how hard we look. And this woman then went on to say that Hebrews tells us that Jesus upholds not just this planet or this solar system or this galaxy, but the entire universe with just the word of his power. He upholds the universe with his pinky finger, as it were. And then she turned to the class and she said, is this really the kind of person you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? 
It kind of just settles the issue for me. I don't know if you're like that. It, the question is, is Jesus really the kind of person that we should invite into our home, telling him which rooms he can walk into and, and which rooms are off limit? Or should we instead just sort of hand him the keys and say, you know what, Jesus, you seem like you know what you're doing. So this house is yours now. And if you've got to tear this thing down to the foundation and rebuild, uh, you got this. This is your house. I'm just along for the ride. And if that means I have to say no to some of the strongest desires I find in my own heart, so be it. And if that means I have to practice a generosity that actually cost me a lifestyle that I had planned for myself, so be it. And if that means I have to confess a few things that I would much rather keep hidden, so be it. And when and not if that means you call me to do things that violate the instincts of my natural human heart, I'm just going to trust that you know what you're doing because the universe has been just fine with the word of your power, so I guess my life will be too. Eventually, we all got to get to that place. Now, but before I continue to, to what's going to be the final move today, I just want to point this out. This, this whole concept, specifically of this idea, obeying without qualification, that's a really tough one today, specifically today. I mean, if I had delivered this same message even 50, 60 years ago, it wouldn't be as, as it, I don't think it would come across as grating or maybe obnoxious or however I'm coming across right now. I'm just really trying not to think about it, to be honest with you. The point is, more so today than, than really in any generation in history, at least in this, I would say, yeah, in history, people are really big on this idea. They're drawn to Christianity because of the love and the joy, but then they sort of freeze up when you start talking about the sacrifice and the servitude that comes along with it. And the reason for that, I mean, I really believe it's fair to say that people are more frozen by that now than they were even in generations past. And, and, and one of, if not the main reason for that, is because we are the first society in history that's based on the belief system known as secularism. The first one in history. And let me kind of explain that, uh, because this, this is really important. This, this next part is kind of the meat and potatoes of this whole message. One of the things that Christianity has in common with, with every other major religion, philosophy, belief system, you name it, one of the things they all have in common is this idea that there are two worlds. There's this life, and then there's the next life. And so every society in human history has been informed by a belief system that taught the people of that society that this life, this world, is full of, of brokenness and difficulty and all that kind of stuff. But the next life, the next world, that's the life of, of joy and peace and bliss and fulfillment and all that kind of stuff. Now, every belief system disagrees on what exactly that next life is like or what exactly you have to do to get admittance to that next life. But the point is, one of the things they all agree on is that there is something after this life. And so people have always universally understood that the purpose of this life is not to be happy. The purpose of this life is to be good. It's to be uh, strong. It's to be brave. It's to be... Um, virtuous. It's to make sacrifices for the greater good. It's basically the purpose of this life is to live this life according to the values of the next life because this life is fleeting. This life is a mist. This life is a vapor, but the next life is, is eternal. The next life is the one that really counts. But then along came this belief system called secularism, which teaches that this life is all there is, which is actually a new idea for people. If you and I had the ability to live for, for hundreds or thousands of years, we would see how weird it is that people believe that today. 
And so basically, you know, secularism teaches that all we have is time and space. That you yourself are nothing more than the accidental evolving of, of natural biological processes. You came from insignificance. Your life ultimately is insignificant. And when your brain function ceases, you will no longer be conscious. That is simply the end of your existence as you know it. There's nothing after this. That's basically secularism 101. And so this society is the first society in human history that's ever been based on this kind of crazy idea that this life is all that there is. But what that means is that if you're going to be happy, it has to be in this life. You only get one shot around the block, so you have to do everything that you can to make yourself as happy as you can be. And so what secularism has done is, is it's created a society of people that believe something that no society has ever believed before in the history of mankind, which is that the meaning of life is to be happy. You hear that in, in our most uh, f- uh, popular songs. You read that in our most popular books. You'll watch that in our most popular movies. And look at the people that our, that our society holds up as heroes. You know, sages, the people that we want to be like when we grow up, celebrities. You're not going to hear a whole lot of them saying that the purpose of life is to die to your wants and your needs for the sake of the people next to you. They're going to say, listen, you need to, you need to self-actualize. You need to forget what everybody else expects of you or thinks of you or says about you. You need to follow your dreams. You need to follow your heart. You need to do everything you can uh, because you owe, your, you owe it to yourself to be as happy as you can be. That's the meaning of life. That right there is, is the fundamentals. That is the greatest evidence of a secular worldview. And so let me just offer, let me offer this just for your consideration, that because we have, unlike any society that's come before us, demanded that this life make us happy, we have found ourselves utterly more unhappy than any society before us. And whether or not you agree with that statement, studies have actually proven it. I don't know how you prove that somebody is is more unhappy than the people that came before them, but secular and religious studies have proven this. You can see this in places like Forbes magazine, where study after study is saying that we are quantifiably less happy than our ancestors that came before us. And the reason for that, fundamentally, is because we're asking this world to give us something that it can't give us. We're asking this world to do something that Christianity and every other major belief system has always said this world simply cannot do. Now, that's kind of heavy. So let me use a very simple illustration from my own life to demonstrate this. Before I got to call myself a professional firefighter, I had to go through a six-month fire academy. And uh, during the, that, those six months were not pleasant. I lost all of my freedom. I had to get up at 4.30 a.m. every morning. Um, I, I was told what to do all day. No matter what I did, I was told I was doing it wrong all day. Uh, I was getting uh, under constant stress, constant pressure that I'm going to fail this test and lose my job and whatever else. And I was making almost nothing. And all I had to look forward to every day was more of the same thing the next day until I graduated. Not the most pleasant experience. With that in mind... If I had gone into the academy believing that my purpose in the, in the fire academy was to have fun or that the job description of my recruit training officers was to ensure that I felt better about myself today than I did yesterday, then the fire academy, which was already challenging, would have quickly become unbearable and I would have become an unbearable person to be around. I'm not even that pleasant to be around to begin with. If I went into the fire academy with those expectations of it, I would have found myself disillusioned. I would have found myself confused. I would have come home every day. I would have complained to everybody within a five-mile radius of how difficult my life was. Wave after wave of self-pity would have crashed on me until eventually I had a breakdown and, and just couldn't do it anymore. 
And so the reason that I got through the academy, the point of this is the reason I got through the academy was because I understood what the purpose of the academy was and what the purpose of the academy was not. The purpose of the academy was not to entertain me, it was to develop me. It wasn't about making me happy, it was about getting me ready. And in Christians, since the beginning of this movement Jesus created about 2,000 years ago, known as Christianity, Christians have understood life in those same terms. That's why Peter, writing to Christians who were facing actual persecution, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, he said, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes among you to test you as though something unusual were happening to you. I was thinking about that verse this week. That phrase, the fiery ordeal, is a Greek word that literally means the burning. He says, don't be surprised at the burning. That's a really striking metaphor that Peter's using there. Because basically what he's saying is the moment that you give your life to Jesus, that moment, Jesus turns you into a lump of gold, which is incredible. But what that means is that from that moment for the rest, the rest of your life is your personal purification process. And what everybody understood in Peter's day is there is exactly one way to purify gold. You've got to put it in the furnace again and again and again and again. And so Peter says, don't be surprised when you feel the heat because this was always a part of the path. And, and so for 2,000 years, Christians have understood, and I think we're, we're, myself included, I think we are in a society that puts us more at risk for forgetting this in a unique way than any group of Christians that's come before us for the last 2,000 years. For the, for, for the expanse of the movement known as Christianity, followers of Jesus have understood that the purpose of this life is not to entertain me, to satisfy me, or fulfill me. It's to develop the image of Christ in me so that I can glorify God and live the life that he's called me to live. That's it. And, and, and somebody might hear that and say, okay, so Christians have a divine calling to be miserable. Where do I sign? You know, let's get baptized today. Let, you know, let's let everybody start lining up in front of the tank. But ironically, the exact opposite is the case. Because Scripture's clear that not only can Jesus followers, not only can we, but we're actually commanded to have a kind of joy and a kind of peace about us that sets us apart from the, from, from the rest of the world. Christians are commanded to have more joy and more peace than any other group of people on the planet. That's God's desire for his people, that we would embody that in a way that serves as a testament to the validity of our belief system. And the reason that we have access to that is because what we will ironically find when we live this life Jesus is, is calling us to live here, what we will ironically find is that we are far more satisfied and fulfilled living this way rather than living with our own satisfaction and fulfillment as our primary goal in life. That's why a theologian named C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. You aim at earth, you'll get neither. So let me just pause here, because I'm on my, I'm on my last page. We're at the last page, church. Take heart. Living out this kind of life that, that Jesus is, 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 is talking about here, I think that w it would be a gross understatement to say, man, that's pretty tough. That's going to be tough to do. But, you know, good luck, everybody. Good pep talk. See you, see you in seven days. This isn't tough, what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about here is the greatest act of trust that the human heart is capable of. What, what Jesus is saying through a parable like this to, 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 to every single one of us, what Jesus is saying is, I know you only get one life. And you don't even know how long it is. I know that that's your condition. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, trust me with it. Give it up entirely. Put it in my hands instead of your own. That and nothing less is the kind of trust I'm asking you to embody. That, that there is nothing that is less intuitive to the human heart than that. Than to trust somebody else with the one life that I have. And so the question that that leaves me with 
is what do you and I need to understand in order to do what Jesus is calling us to do here? And there's, there's three answers to that question in this passage. Like I said, I'm on my last page. Basically, this whole teaching, I think, is going to be not very helpful unless you really kind of lean in here. So let me just offer you three things according to this passage that you and I need if we're going to embody what Jesus is talking about here. Number one, we need to understand that we're already a slave no matter who we are or what we believe. The, the idea of giving up your freedom in servitude to Jesus only sounds unpalatable if you believe the idea that outside of Jesus you're free, which is simply not true. And Jesus actually subtly gets at this in, in the parable that he, that, he, that he delivers here about the farmer and the slave. I mentioned earlier that slaves in that day were indentured servants who had fallen, they had accrued a debt that they couldn't pay. When that happened in your life, when you accrued that kind of debt, there were only two options for you. You either lose your freedom in the service of your creditor or you lost your freedom in debtor's prison. Either way, your freedom's gone. Either way, you're a slave. And what Jesus is explaining is that's the human condition. And this is really important to keep in mind because it is, it's incredibly common in our culture to believe this idea that your choices in life are give up any chance you had at, at, at having fun to serve God or else you can be free and live the kind of life that you really want, which is simply not true. Because regardless of what you believe, whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious, a Christian or an atheist or anything in between, one thing that we all have in common is we're all living for something. And whatever that thing is, that's your master. That, that can be your career. That can be other people's opinion of you. That can be romantic love. That can be money. That can be physical beauty. Or maybe it's at, at different times in your life, all of those things and a whole, whole lot else. But the point is, whatever that thing is that you're living for in every way, shape, and form is your master. And if that master, if your master is not Jesus, I can promise you three things about that master. Number one, it will demand your entire life from you. It'll demand you make your career your master, you make romantic love your master, you make your physical appearance your master. It will demand your entire life from you. Number two, it will never give you what it promises to give you. Real peace, real fulfillment, real satisfaction is always going to be just out of reach. But number three, and maybe most importantly, it'll never forgive you if you fail it. Jesus is the only master that will do that. No other master will forgive you if you fail it. So first off, we need to understand that when we talk about giving up my freedom to Jesus, we don't really give up our freedom. We've lost it. It's just a question of who we want our master to be. That's the first thing we need to understand. Number two, we need to understand the kind of debt that we owe. And this is where the parable of the ten lepers comes into play in, in helping us understand this parable. If you remember, one of the ten lepers that Jesus healed came back to Jesus, and Scripture says that leper fell at the feet of Jesus, uh, praising God with a loud voice, and thanking Jesus for what he had done. Now, to fall at the feet of Jesus, what that's showing us is the posture of a servant. They even called Jesus master in that story. That's the posture of uh, that leper is basically saying, Jesus, here I am. My life is yours. I understand what you've done for me. Command me as you will. I belong to you now. And, and what we're seeing there, his, his situation, his, his stance toward Jesus shows us the kind of debt that will turn you into the servant that Jesus calls you and I to be. In other words, there's wrong kinds of debt to carry around. For instance, you can think that you're a Christian servant. 
You can agree with the two main ideas of this teaching. You, you, can, you can say, I know that God doesn't owe me anything, and I, I know that I'm to obey him without qualification. But if the debt that you're carrying around in life is a debt of law, if it's a debt of obligation, if, it, if, a debt, if, if it's a debt that has you saying, well, let me go ahead and try as hard as I can to live a good life, and then maybe Jesus will love me, or maybe God will you know, grant me his favor and his mercy and his acceptance if I work hard enough, then that's the kind of debt that will crush you, and that's the kind of debt that ironically will keep you from ever being the kind of servant that Jesus prescribes here. That's not what we're talking about. The debt that the leper has in that story that turns him into a servant of Jesus is the debt of love because he knows that his life has been cleansed. He knows that Jesus just gave him a brand new life. And so what it means to become a Christian servant is that you see and you understand that Jesus already has cleansed you. And so you're not serving out of this kind of faint hope that maybe one day God will love you and accept you. You're praising him. You're falling down before him because you know that he already, through Jesus, you know that he already has accepted you and his love's never going to end towards you. And so instead of this kind of fear-based, works-driven relationship with God that has you on the mountaintop one day and in the valley the next, always wondering if you measure up, your service to Jesus becomes the greatest joy of your life, and it's marked by thankfulness toward the one who's cleansed you. So, so the second thing we need to understand is the kind of debt that we owe, but this is my last idea today. So we're, we're almost done. The third thing we need to understand is the kind of master that Jesus is. And I, I kind of touched on this earlier, but while every other master in this life demands our lives from us, this is what's so unique about Jesus. He's the one master who gave his life for us. And because Jesus did that, we are not only servants, but according to Scripture, we're sons and daughters. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. I've never quoted it um, from, a, from a, a sermon before because it's so weird. I actually read it in quarantine and it's a book that's actually written from the perspective of a demon. And a uh, very, very strange book. But there's a, there's a, there's a specific uh, line in the Screwtape Letters where C.S. Lewis is articulating the difference between uh, Satan's hope and God's hope for mankind in general. And I thought he just said this better than I ever could. This is a demon speaking. He said, we want cattle who can finally become food. God wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in while he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our aim is a world in which Satan has drawn all other beings into himself. God wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And here's, here's what this means. It means that, that ultimately in the end, Service to God is the only kind of real freedom that exists. Because in Jesus, we are servants who both already are and are still becoming sons and daughters of the Most High God. And the only reason for that is because in Jesus, we have the one master who gave his life that his servants might finally know freedom. And the more that that becomes real to us, the more service to him becomes our greatest joy in life. Let me call the worship team up and I'm, I'm going to close with this. John Newton who was a, a famous hymn writer, he really encapsulated everything that I'm trying to get across today with, with basically two stanzas. So I guess I could have just read this on the front end and saved everybody some time. He said, our pleasure and our duty, I really, I really hear this because we're done. It says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. 
to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. And so my summary statement is that in Jesus, we are children of God. Scripture could not be any more clear about that. But we are children who throw ourselves down before our Father with a posture of heart that says, command me, whatever your will for my life, even if I don't understand it, even if it costs me, even if it doesn't pay off and give me the life that I had planned out for myself, your will be done in my life. And when our hearts fail us as we try to live that out, when we inevitably fall like every single one of us will, we need only go back to the cross where we see that one time a master loved his servants so much that he laid his life down for our freedom. And as we see him doing that for us, in turn, we lay down our lives for him. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, this is, a, this is especially in the day and age that you have sovereignly seen fit to put us in, the culture that you've sovereignly seen fit to put us in. There's, there's always going to be aspects of your word that are harder for us, that are sharper for us than others given how we've been formed by our culture. But our, our, our goal in life is to be more formed by you than our surroundings, to be more a product of our Savior than our circumstances. And so, God, this passage calls us to the hardest thing that we're ever going to have to do, which is to trust you with want and disregard, to hand over our very lives to you with open hands, to let you do whatever you want to do with it. God, there's not a single one of us that has the strength to do that. So would you give us the ability to see Jesus laying down his life for us? And as we see our master laying down his life for his servants, God, would it cause this willingness to trust you that translates to this, this obedience that follows you wherever you lead, that lets go of whatever you want us to let go of, that lays hold of whatever you want us to lay hold of, knowing that service to you is our greatest joy and highest calling. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.